the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machine of Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce this week's guest, Consider tossing us a buck a month at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. This week, we are proud to bring to you Professor Gary Janosko, who many of you may know for his critical works on Baudrillard and Felix Guattari, as well as his work on semiotics, information theory, and communication theory. So much of our friends and mutuals and listeners will already know of your work, but we'll kind of give them the rundown. I feel like you need no introduction in, in <laughs> my in my view, but you know, obviously, I what I was saying before the before we started was basically I am fascinated to know your. We can talk first about how you got into Baudrillard or, or what what was it about your studies in, in grad school that brought you towards some of the recurring themes in your work, like the question of information, communication, the, specifically these thinkers that put linguistics to task or, or, or submit it to some, some scrutiny. You know, you can see kind of the allies you mobilize in this, in this fight against the what Guattari himself calls, you know, the imperialism of linguistics. I came at it uh, through the conjunction of semiotics and psychoanalysis. That was my one of my preferred routes, first of all. And that was based upon the opportunities that I had from the time I was an undergraduate into my sort of early graduate school years, just to attend these summer institutes on semiotic and structural studies. And I was fascinated with uh, semiotic problems during that period, that would have been early 1980s, so the first mm -hmm. half of the 1980s. And then later on, when I became much more conversant with psychoanalysis, having studied extensively in, in sort of later grad school, Freud and, and uh, Lacan, etc., the two together were, you know, an obvious Guattarian hybrid. And you could see that in everything that he wrote, he's trying to work through this sort of these different, the European reception of semiotics via mm -hmm. Jemslev mm -hmm. and the problems that he encountered clinically and theoretically vis-a-vis -vis the anti-psychiatry movement, what was the relationship between institutional psychotherapy and anti-psychiatry? You know, he was more of an anti-anti-psychiatrist uh, <laughs> than, than, you know, because he was not impressed with with some of the British experiments in this area, R.D. Lang and, and others. Although he did like, you know, D David Cooper, some mm. of the things that Cooper did. The psychoanalytic critique in, in Antietipus, which is, you know, less anti and more of a kind of sideways mm. shift, also fascinated me because, I, you know, studying for years and years Freud, 
Freudian psychoanalysis, you know, sort of embeds you in, in that thought and the combination of a Persian, Jemslevian style of semiotics, not so much a linguistic structuralism, but that was always in the semiotic, uh, you know, field that you had to reckon with. So you always had, Guattari was a great, uh, someone to travel with, a great fellow traveler, because he always looked uh, askance at linguistic structuralism and the imperialism of linguistics and the critique of all forms of structuralist thought, especially schools of structuralism and followership. This started for him a kind of critique of scientificity mm-hmm. and the performance, the performance of science, the wearing of lab coats and the, <laughs> t- the titling of a conferences, scientific conference on X. So that was also very much in the spirit I was working in as a philosopher, someone trained in philosophy and uh, environmental studies. Now, the other route, which is equally, I think, interesting is ecosophy, except during that period in the 1980s, the only one using the term was Arnie Ness. And right. Norwegian philosopher, originally a philosopher of language, but then he comes over to this view of self, expanded self in, in the environmental field and develops this, this concept of ecosophy, which Guattari picks up, but does mm-hmm. never attributes to him, as far as I'm <laughs> right. aware, never attributes to him. And it, it's almost as if when you're reading in the late 80s, Guattari, you think, ecosophy, oh, where does this come from? Well, obviously, it's Ness's term. He used it all through the decade. But there's never, never a real engagement. And I, I think that I've spoken about this in various spots Mm-hmm. over the years. And I don't know if there's really a productive outcome of that, whether the di- dialogue is even possible. I don't very much because of the really, really different concepts of subjectivity mm. at play in those two different thinkers. And yet yeah. you have, you know, you have, of course, so those are the two, those are my preferred routes. But even before that, mm-hmm. if you can tolerate yet another, <laughs> no, another I love it. Please. if, I love if it. you I add it. a tributary, if you <laughs> add a tributary to these, these two rivers, it was, of course, Baudrillard. And, mm-hmm. and Baudrillard offered a rigorous critique of the sign. His anti-semiology was very highly tuned and developed. I became fascinated with that. And symbolic <laughs> exchange and death for me was the key. Libidinal economy, symbolic exchange and death, anti-Oedipus. Those are key books for me in my for- international <laughs> formation. Awesome. Especially the anthropological <laughs> yes in symbolic exchange and death, which I spent a lot of time working on right. when, when I was writing my dissertation. Oh, that's amazing. So of course, I, yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of an odd set of interests right they're certainly not core disciplinary (laughs) interests by any stretch of the imagination so i was always a bit of a marginal character within the sort of disciplinary spectrum it's that kind of transdisciplinary spirit that 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 does show a fidelity to you know you could say guattari's vision or his own attempts to carve out these spaces that didn't pre-exist you know i mean other than as i kind of said you you've already shown your a short genealogy or short you know history of how you approach these topics but and now makes sense much more clearly with your chapter on anti-semiology your second chapter in the in the critical semiotics book that now i see clearly the connections between baudrillard and guattari which beforehand I had only seen glimpses of, you know, you mentioned anti-Oedipus, uh, libidinal economy, and and then symbolic exchange of death. 
And Cooper and I have been kind of circulating around these, these works, thinking of, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily direct influence, yes. but there is a, there is a chronology and there, there is an interplay of, there's a dialogue going on. You, for example, in your chapter on Baudrillard, you don't go easy on him when you cite from libidinal economy, from Leotar, who is rather, if not rude or even kind of libelous in a certain way. He does call what Baudrillard kind of like a fellow brother, but at the same time, he's, he's not holding back in his no, um, no. in his estimation. Well, I mean, think how long it took for sort of the European left to accept Baudrillard into their ranks. It was only really, you know, Bifo and Lazzarato and others took them almost up until 2018 <laughs> to admit that, you know, Baudrillard has some very interesting ideas, some prescient ideas about, about credit and debt, mm-hmm. about, and that simulation became a key to understanding the digital world, and that the divide was symbolic exchange and death. The divide, mm. They thought of it as a reactionary right. text. And if you read it in terms of his vision of the anthropological precursor to the semiotic regime, then you can understand how some of those ideas would you know, marginalize him politically, even though he was moving in the same circles during his younger years, right? politically. What Cooper and I keep trying to articulate, and you put really well, is this notion that you could say it's just this work, but you could, I know that there's other works that you cite where it's not just a question of nihilism, because I do get the feeling from Baudrillard, as I've tried to describe it, is, is whether there is there's a nostalgia, although he he kind of relegates that to an impossibility. But there is this nihilism. But you you put it very well, where you're saying it, it's a certain way of going past nihilism and, and even going beyond it and through it, maybe and taking it further. And I wonder if that is part of the unpalatableness for the left in in Baudrillard's work. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that raises some eyebrows to say the least, it raises some questions for them about the consequences of this particular move. And in Baudrillard, the moves are so tightly scripted that he doesn't often present a very heterogenetic picture. For instance, in the critique of semiology, it's just semiology. Right. And in contrast to the symbolic, there isn't a a kind of broader introduction of James Lev or Peirce or you right. know, even Umberto Eco is, does that. There you and go, Echo, yeah. And, and Eco moves is, is very much closer to Guattari in that sense, that those source materials are for him very significant, but not never in Baudrillard, never, you know, that, that sort of ecumenical spirit isn't there. Right. It does seem his mobilization, as you pointed out, the anthropological core of yeah. symbolic exchange of death with his relation to, to Maus, and the gift oh, and the counter absolutely. gift, right? Absolutely crucial. And uh, the African material that he borrows from Jolan and uh, the the Chad, uh, Sarah, Sarah people in Chad, and uh, the rituals, uh, the importance of rituals and coming of age rituals in particular, and the way in which this is, in a sense, enacted through these these special objects. Right. You know, the boulette, meat and mud ball. For him, th- this is a new, this is, this is a, an alternative world. Right. Anti-capital, anti-semiotic, anti-semiological, anti-capital, you know, whatever, call it what you like. 
but that's for him. But it's also a very poetic anthropology, a very, mm-hmm. a very, uh, you know, an anthropology that's no longer in the field, that no longer has any connection to the field, because you always, you know, he, he leaves you wondering, like, well, why would anyone actually respond to the counter gift or who would receive the counter gift? Which corporation could possibly <laughs> receive a counter, a counter gift of death until... Mm-hmm. Decades later, he figures out, ah, so 9-11 is the embodiment mm. of embodiment of this counter gift of death. Right. I mean, it is, it is, <laughs> he, he does, he does say right out in that first chapter, he ends it, if I remember correctly, by kind of suggesting it's sort of my immediate death that could be this counter gift or this gift that couldn't be reciprocated and thereby. Yeah. sort of destabilize the structure. And and that, I choose not to read that as a direct nihilistic statement that we should all just be lemmings and, and jump off. But <laughs> I don't, you know, he doesn't really, yeah. it, it, it's imaginative and it, it's uh, I mean, it's he's provocative. Anticip- he's anticipating the logic of terrorism. I mean, that's. Yes. I mean, and that's really is- astute vision to see how that, I mean, just as neoliberalism is really shifting into gear, that's just, I think incredible insight. He does work that out early on in some of the books, some of the books. I can't remember which one it is now, but, and I recall even giving a paper on precisely this topic at a conference when I was a graduate (laughs) student, trying to show that he had anticipated some of these, Mm -hmm. some of these issues. And he was marvelous in his capacity to predict and to follow trends in that respect. But it is nihilistic to offer a kind of death as a solution, right? A fundamental social solution, because <laughs> it is not normal to be dead in our society, and yet in some societies it is normal to be dead and to communicate with the dead, right? When we say death, this is not nihilism at all, right? For him, this is something more profound, something non-Western mm. that he's trying to access and to integrate into a sort of critical understanding of how do you resist the code, societies of simulation and the code. This is a solution to the extent that it's applicable. Well, probably it never was applicable, but theoretically it is a solution right. to the problem yeah. he poses. Is it as simple as saying that's his version of a kind of death drive, maybe the death drive of symbolic exchange, or is that just now we're just using Obviously, the death drive gets used broadways, yeah. and and I'm kind of uh, anticipating here a little bit because I do want to get your thoughts on Guattari's kind of shift of the notion of death drive, especially when it comes to to institutions. To the extent that he even retains an idea of, of a death drive, that's a good question mm-hmm. because the source material for this is is very different. I mean, there is the whole unpacking of psychoanalysis mm-hmm. in Symbolic Exchange and, and Death. But that will take us very far afield. If we stick to the anthropological content right. and we can see sort of what the point is, you know, to be more most than most, right? To, to yeah. read most against most, to be more mostian than most could ever possibly be. And to be so attached to this idea of the circulation as the circulation and the reciprocity must take precedence over all else. Right. And yet, how do you provoke a society that's not interested in reciprocity to receive the gift of death? For him, this is a fundamental problem. I should say that this is, in a way, his anthropological training arose 
in some ways during his visits to the U.S. in the late 60s and early 70s, when he was attending conferences about design and also sitting in on a few lectures, anthropology lectures, that he was really interested in. I mean, it's fascinating. There's a whole tradition of theories of the gift, and, and uh, I used to teach a grad course on this subject, from most to Derrida, Theories of the <laughs> Gift. It was Ooh. one of my absolute favorite courses to Very teach. Nice. Abs- absolutely wonderful material. That's a long, like that, in a way, it's a detour, but sure. it's all part of my formation. I mean, yes, what, happens yes. to you, what happens to you when you teach in sociology departments <laughs> is that you tend to teach, you know, sort of quasi-orthodox, right. so you don't, you're not standing outside the batter's box all the time. You have at right. least one, one foot in there. <laughs> Even in psychoanalysis, it's not the same lineage, but you do kind of have a theory of gifts, whether it be, you know, sort of uh, yielding jouissance to the big other or mm-hmm. the childhood theories of sexuality, of, of sort of giving the child to the parent figure with the feces. You can see some resonances there, but it's a, obviously it's in a totally different register. I always wondered about Baudrillard, his use of psychoanalytic concepts, especially in this early work, like in the critique of, or for critique of the political economy of the sign and, and in symbolic exchange and death, I always wondered about, is it perhaps because of this, of the centrality or the seeming centrality of, of Lacan and structuralism that, that he has to become, or psychoanalysis, as you kind of pointed out earlier, right? It's, Central, at least in Europe, the European reception of structuralism. Yeah. Is that kind of why it has to be dealt with by, by Baudrillard? I think his root is even stranger. I mean, he's hmm. a Germanist, right? He's a Germanist okay. by training and he's translating plays, a lot of that's plays right. and whatnot into French from German. And that's how he gets his start in a way in publishing. And then he, he moves into this consumer society is the the topic that animates his early theoretical production. And he wants to understand semiotically, you know, what the meaning of an object is and how consumption can be described quite anthropologically from the very start, but semiologically and anthropologically. Those are the key moments for him. But how he gets from this Germanism to consumer society via Lefebvre, I mean, I suppose, is anyone's guess. I don't know the whole story, precise story. I mean, I mean, no one's written a book about this yet. Hey, for, opportunity. For, for, yeah, opportunity for the listeners out there, you know, start. I mean, that's uh, a project I should work on. <laughs> I mean, we have every possible angle on Foucault known to, known to the world, but we have nothing really comparable in Baudrillard. And we have massive studies of Deleuze and Guattari and their lives. So for the, we have nothing, nothing like that in Baudrillard. I think it'd be quite worthwhile for those who knew him in his younger days, especially. Right. Not myself. I came a bit later. I was of the generation. I was just exchanging a few messages with Bill Bogard, who was a, you know, kind of early adopter of Baudrillard in Baudrillard studies. And we were said, oh, we will, we all remember the first conference at Missoula, Montana, the University of Montana on Baudrillard <laughs> in the U.S. And we were, I was still a graduate student. And I, right. In, 89, uh, in 89. Wow. So we, you know, we were exchanging notes. Do you remember this? Do you remember that? Eugene Chadbourne played and uh, <laughs> played his electrified rake and Baudrillard was bored. Oh, <laughs> that's too bad. We could not impress him. The organizers took him to view a hole in the ground that had opened up a giant pit. 
Okay. And it opened up in Butte. <laughs> he was like, whatever. Is this, is this oh, American excess? I don't know. Wow. It was Amazing. an interesting moment. But yeah, that was, I, was, I was studying pataphysics in Baudrillard. I, I wanted to know, you know how in his kind of intellectual formation, how pataphysics in, his, in a sense high school formation mm. how influential this was and it was extremely important to him you know Alfred Jari and the mm. figure of Ubu and pataphysics as you know as far beyond far beyond metaphysics as metaphysics is beyond physics <laughs> and you know Deleuze again comes back to pataphysics to mock mm. Heidegger and you know so it's an important it's important thread that we don't have that kind of thread in our intellectual training. We don't well, have that ribald, you know, ferocious, <laughs> right. parodic encounter with thought. You know, I love the thread that you made with bringing up his pataphysics and the plays he translated, right? Because I think that that's a thread, that literary background that, as you said, could be mm -hmm. a source of interest. But I guess that, would you say if there is, you know, connecting Baudrillard and someone like Felix Watry, you spent countless pages in, in books sort of making it clear that he deserves, he merits attention on his own. Is it in anti-semiology, this notion of sort of taking linguistics to task? Because Baudrillard himself doesn't really give much thought to the asignifying. No, or, not at all. And right. I think that, well, that is in asignification is the symbolic exchange for interesting Guattari. and for Guattari this is a whole other dimension of how you know things like uh, algorithms enunciate machines mm -hmm. how your magnetic stripe on your credit card enunciates mm -hmm. a process of verification and so forth and it's the movement of information that the, that, that proto-enunciativity mm -hmm. is a feature a very interesting feature of this animist it's almost an animistic principle that the proto-enunciative machine is the asignifying semiotics in Guattari, and that is completely original. And I think that the, the informational examples, that's why I, in one way I gravitate <clears throat> towards them, <clears throat> as they make sense to me and what I'm trying to think right. through, but also this kind of provocative title that I gave in Critical Semiotics, the search for non-meaning. Mm -hmm. Search for non-meaning is, of course, a critique of the famous phenomenological psych psychiatry books, the search for meaning, man's search, right. for, man's sick search for meaning the obsession that semiotics has with meaning. What about right. non-meaning? Mm -hmm. What about the lower level of semiotics? What about signals? Some of your, your polemic, if you will, uh, a little bit too, if I'm correct, it's against eco situating the signaletic at the, the lower stratum. Absolutely. And this, I, I think that's very much, I definitely want, want to hear your thoughts on this, but I think that's very much in line with Guattari's own types of polemics where, you know, situating sort of the abstract to the concrete in this kind of hierarchy or these other types of hierarchies of signs and, and non-signs and all, and all that that just doesn't quite accord with his vision. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just a residue of a semiotic hierarchization of signs mm -hmm. that is never critically addressed and that signals always are always the poor cousins <laughs> of as it were, of all other sign types. And the reason that they have no, I mean, they have no, no psych psychical 
right. dimension. They have no, at the top of the pyramid, there's, they have nothing. Mm-hmm. They don't need it. Right. And this, Guattari says, is actually a virtue. Right. This, is, this shows us that something, a different kind of connectivity is at work here, and we should attend to it because asignification is, in a way, the future of machinic mm-hmm. interfaces that we, as we displace more and more the human from these processes, or at least have the human adjacent or subjacent to mm-hmm. them, the subjectivity subjacent or adjacent mm-hmm. to them, we don't need to follow follow that search for meaningfulness in the same way that the tradition has diagrammed it in a way. Right. You know, Saussure and, uh, you know, even Ogden and Richards to go yeah. back to the 50s. Even Purse, you know, you, you point out throughout your work, this is another refrain. I'm trying to pull out some refrains yeah. from your work that you've isolated that have really helped to illuminate things for my own study is this notion that Guattari also val- revalorizes the diagram against Purse, who wants yes. to kind of subsume it under the, the icon and, and, and relegate it to perhaps more mathematical representations, visual representations, correct? Yes, absolutely. And he does this, he does that in a number of ways, mm-hmm. very interesting ways. He does the same thing with Gemslev, right? He's going to, you know, he's well-schooled in these thinkers and he's going to read them against themselves mm-hmm. to a certain degree and extract from them things that he needs to create this asignifying universe that he wants to populate with diagrams and and, and so on. The reversibility of uh, expression and content. Mm-hmm. And he wants to take just certain, you know, because, you know, in James Lev, there's still a linguistic imperialism in there. And mm-hmm. if you let it loose, if you let it out of its box, it will it will take its take its revenge on you. But Guattari says, no, 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 we're not having any of that. That's not the what we want. The same with purse. It's not that we're going to be beholden in any way to the categories that he generates. We're going to extract from them this particular idea that that we want to be generative, forward looking always becoming unfinished in a way. In purse, there is that element, but it's not, it's always beholden to the categories. Is it that purse is still searching for meaning in a certain way? I mean, is, is that still one of the, the ancillary goals and perhaps? Yes, yes, because he wants to, at the end of the day, be able to be able to say that in the community, there are solutions to meaning. And we all agree in the end about something. Right, But it, yes. it, you know, the teleological thought in this regard, leads us to that point. But in Guattari, we never get a sense that dissensus is always going to be more important. Right. Deviation, aberration, mm-hmm. lines of flight, escape points, escape hatches, all those are going to trump, as it were, any teleological conclusion. I love that you say that because it really, that is what you find again in something like Three Ecologies and Chaosmosis and the ecosophical turn, which is this notion of cultivating the census. It's also, you find it in Deleuze, right? Where it's it's this critique of good sense and common sense. It's the whole notion that everybody knows, and perhaps we actually need the transcendental idiot to ask the obvious questions that, what does everybody know? How is it that we all share this, this knowledge, this consensus that sort of, um, mm-hmm. you know, presumes that we fit in and that everything, as you said, is teleologically geared towards some higher goal. All of these matters come right down to the practice of borrowing concepts, re, you know, working on them, changing them, recalibrating them, and reinserting them into different systems of thought. 
and it is sort of a fundamental activity for the theor- for any theorist. I mean, it's the the way in which you generate what I used to call in the old days textual operators, as it were. How do you get hmm. something, you know, to do to perform certain roles or tasks for you in your text? Right. The way in which Derrida would operationalize these very simple ideas and put them to work, and and then follow in a way follow them through all of these different texts to see what damage they could they could do. <laughs> I think this is an aspect of Lacan that Guattari adopts, or at least that's my kind of take on it. But I wanted to go back, Gary, to the A signifying, just because when you mentioned the credit card, the magnetic strip and the all of that, the first thing I thought of was blockchain, because blockchain technology is sort of removing the human from the process of, like you said, there's no other outside authority like a state or whatever to direct the completion of the contract or whatever the key, the key sort of Mm -hmm. that's going on in that blockchain, whatever that is. I don't understand the technology that well, but I think conceptually, this is something that I had thought about relative to mouse as well in the gift. And in terms of that reciprocity of contract and counter gift or along those lines, because the technology itself is what renders reciprocity. There's no escape from that reciprocity in that way, but these are just some kind of fleeting thoughts. I'm trying to think about some more advanced examples that's sort of beyond, a little bit beyond where I've come, because it, it's not obvious to me that the human ever leaves the scene, ever mm-hmm. flees the Certainly. scene. And there's always, you know, some residue or there's some intersection that's just maybe not obvious with what we would call a human. I mean, I don't want to overemphasize the information tech side of things. And sure. so I'm a slightly resistant. I like a, <laughs> I like a slightly older fashioned idea, like a magnetic stripe, which is almost at, you know, at the end of its life. Right. I think that we won't have that soon. That, that will Certainly. be all over with. Right. And Guattari's doesn't start there. He says, oh, what about the signature when you go into the bank and you sign a, a little sheet of paper and that sets into motion the mm. signature. So he's gone from a kind of analog example to a not digital, but a kind right. of proto- proto-digital, mm-hmm. a trigger mechanism, right? Something that triggers a digital digital right. process, process yeah, that yeah, are digitally yeah. linked. And blockchain is the sort of Precisely. end of that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you can extend. But right. you can also say there's something else that he's trying to get at, that it's not just information technology, that this is happening in the earth. Mm-hmm. This is happening when mm-hmm. you when you recycle your vegetables from your kitchen. This is, you're creating this transformation, this asignifying transformation chemically. Uh, And this to him is another example that's just as rich. Right, yes. No pun intended, (laughs) but... But just as just as viable, and I know that that Taylor is obviously remembering this section from the Machine Unconscious. Yeah. I often quote it. It's a great section about the breakdown of vegetable matter into earth and the movement through that earth of worms and proteins mm. and minerals and all of those transformations, those signals, asignifying. That's an mm. asignifying universe he's inhabiting, right. well below. The information tech threshold. Right. I love how <laughs> you know you do you do um, point out this move towards whether it be a metaphor or just a kind of a method of of working out the implications. This notion of a soil science and of of what you call yeah. a, a humification. And you humification. do quote you do quote that I don't know provocative. It, it's provocative imagistically. This notion that the a signifying and a subjective components 
sort of proliferate off of the manure of signifying components and subjective components. You know, Guattari gives us this image of, as you said, this kind of recycling and this kind of composting. Yes, absolutely. It's another way into a signification, mm-hmm. which is difficult enough to explain to anyone <laughs> who has discovered that, oh, actually, the entire history of semiology that I have just learned is now thrown into the wastebasket <laughs> because mm-hmm. there are no psychical, dim- there's no meaning, there's no psychical dimension, there's no signified that's significant. And this is throws into crisis a lot of, uh, semi- a lot of semiotics. And it's, as Guattari calls it, it's, it's imperialism. And it's obviously one of the things that Guattari is concerned about is the way in which linguistics has, it's not just the imperialism of the despotic signifier, right? Which is a figure that at least stems yeah. back to anti-Edibus, if not even further back to right. Guattari's own writings uh, on Lacan, but this notion of sort of hiding or dissimulating power. Again, this goes back to everybody knows and the common sense, but you know, he, he has that, I love that footnote about Chomsky's S is yeah. a marker of power and not Yes, not, exactly. Not... <laughs> that the medieval, I mean, this is a medieval concept of the tree mm-hmm. that inhabits logic. Umberto Eco is very good on this. You know, he would, you know, would give you a history of trees, logical <laughs> trees, and right up to, you could go take it right up to Chomsky from, from mm-hmm. medieval logic to, to Chomsky's linguistics. And you could say that, yes, I mean, this is going to be subject to a critique. It's very interesting for me to think about someone who listened to those kinds of lectures from, from Umberto and, and sort of followed medieval thought in my philosophical training and became fascinated with, with kind of early semiotics and how semiotics and logic were always close together, right up to Peirce, in fact. Right. So that, those are, for me, key, key reference points. I love the examples that you give and the obviously we could we could talk about all kinds of other technology because one of the things that I would jump to from here is now I'm not sure if you got this directly from Reza Nagarastani, but you do develop this notion of a kind of I'm not sure if you call it a machinic dust or if you call it. Yeah, that for sure. I mean, that's where it comes from. Exactly. That's the source. Cyclonomedia was the source material for that. And I, I originally wrote a, a short piece on the four elements mm-hmm. updated from, say, Empedocles to the present and borrowing for each element a different kind of model that poses a problem ecologically, semiotically, you know, human cyborg post-humanistically for a for a collection that uh, that came out on uh, post post-humanism and that that was my sort of focal point in, in terms of history of philosophy of ideas you have these you know key elements in the pre-socratics mm-hmm. and up until aristotle in a way and then you know you have that hanging around as a model of thought dust is beautiful it's so such a rich yes. rich idea and it's not even a nat- post-natural you know, it's not, it's the way in which liquidity, either blood or oil or mm-hmm. gas on water or gas in the water or mm-hmm. propane in or methane in the water, mm-hmm. you know, from fracking, fracking pollution, you know, that becomes water in our world. Right. It's more than bottled water, although bottled water is also in that category now, mm-hmm. but you can generate through this process, this renewal of those fundamental elements, a bunch of 
a bunch of examples that are provocative and certainly earth, you know, dust, traces of dust, various dust being blown either from deserts, having different qualities and different colors and different effects and the way in which uh, the air is uh, you know, perfused with particles. So that air changes and then you have the slaughter dike, the Atmo terror mm. element entering into it. But the dust is like smart dust. What is smart? What would smart dust be? There's a, it was an idea that I was playing around with in that book that you can think about a kind of particle, particulate, semi-particulates mm -hmm. that could be given a, a kind of intelligence and, in a sense, mobilized or become autopoetically directed mm -hmm. into a kind of cluster of, you know, these sort of techno objects. Right. And that's not too far from, from reality these days. So you get this sort of shift from the organic to the post-organic, from the, you know, the sort of machining of the dust becomes more and more pronounced if you think about, sh you know, sh all of the dead skin under our desks and all of the metal shavings from our bicycles and, <laughs> all, and the plastic shards embedded in our skin and mm. in all through, all through our bodies. You get this whole sense that the world of dust is, is magnificent and terrible <laughs> at the same time. It reminded me this notion of the particle sign dust. Yeah, the, the, the semio dust, as you call it. What I really enjoyed was you linking it to Guattari's notion of of the machinic phylum or the mechanosphere, which kind of suffuses the biosphere. And that yeah. made very palpable for me why and what you were trying to do with following this, this idea around, because I think that that is implicated in this notion of the mechanosphere and in the notion of, which I, I, I suppose the machinic phylum, and they're not the same thing, but the future of robotics or nanotechnology, it's all very close on the horizon. Yeah, the nanobot revolution. In a way, I just wanted to evoke this very contemporary idea that we are shrouded in particle signs and we are saturated, immersed in them in everywhere we move, every time we move, in environments in which our walls and our furniture are shedding, we're shedding constantly. Mm -hmm. Everything around us sheds all of these micro, <laughs> micro fibers and, and so forth. And I wanted to get that real sense of when he talks about machinic phylum, that this is the kind of phylum that, that we have to begin to think about at the molecular level, that what we've got, you know, that we are in this soup of, mm -hmm. of semi-particles boiled a in a place that we are boiled <laughs> in this soup every like a, day like a gumbo huh yeah like a like a gumbo exactly <laughs> a good roux cooper did you have any questions related to psychoanalysis i i don't want to hog Gary cooper was uh, suggesting something about lacan this is a very complicated very complicated <laughs> subject could take us hours to figure this out that's true that's but true I... it's very complicated let me just say one thing if you are an analysand of jacques lacan and you are a pain in the ass essentially that you're not cooperative you're not buying it mm. you are kind of restless you have your own intellectual project you're doing all the things you're not supposed to do with regard to your analyst. Mm -hmm. Are you 
at all surprised that it ends badly, the relationship. And yet he wants to respect intellectually the accomplishments of Lacan, theoretical accomplishments, which stay with him his entire life. It's not as if he suddenly in a resigns from the school or, mm -hmm. or you know, just sort of gives up that, that heritage. It's rather that he becomes annoyed at the very idea of a school and he becomes resistant to it. And he says, oh, instead, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to treat Lacan like I treat Mose, like I treat James Lev, and I'm going to borrow things that I like and recalibrate them and put them to work in my own theory. And mm -hmm. so that's how you get very early on the insertion of the, of the machine into structure. Right. Mm -hmm. This begins to, to not disable, but to disorient structure, to make it shake and to, to wobble. And so that he can, in a sense, pull it all the way out the other end, having gone through that process and end up with a kind of Lacanian machinism. It does seem like the break with Lacan was already baked into the, the mix with, you know, the way you begin your critical introduction. You paint the, the picture of Guattari's idea of, of analysis is not really, I mean, on very few points is convergent with, with a private practice this notion of an institutional yeah. matrix with the grid, with transversality. It doesn't, it, it's surprising he stayed with him for as long as he did and was that influenced by him. But devotion, I mean, there's an, uh, there's an homage, mm -hmm. homage and there's devotion. And then there's the sort of indifference. There's a restlessness. There's a lot of factors at, at work that I think that if we just think of Antiadipus as a kind of anti-psychoanalytic book, or an anti-Lacan book, we're just wrong to right. do so. And there's, there's a lot of um, very uh, interesting statements about what Lacan got right in Anti-Oedipus. And even the castration comp complex, I mean, even these ideas like of Freud's, they survive in Guattari, and they constantly he constantly comes back to them. Dream interpretation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's extraordinary when you read some of those pieces that he wrote later on. We don't really know, we don't have a case study, dossier of case studies, right. so that we can say, oh, there's a few examples here and there that Guattari published, where he's, you know, gives some very interesting examples of some patients that he was dealing with. But we don't have in the spirit of Freud, those kinds of case studies. It wasn't the genre that he necessarily no, invested no. in. He did not, you know, did not strongly believe in that kind of narr narrative. Right. Narrativization of the encounter, analytic encounter. But his interest was in the reorganization of an institution mm -hmm. and its enactment in a kind of ongoing process was more, much, much more important. Right, that already, that already breaks the genre yeah. of the case yeah. history and yeah, that already explodes, explodes it. it. Yeah, explodes it completely, explodes it. And you look at the a document like the grid and all of the different variations that, that there were of the grid, all the different ways of drawing the grid and the way in which he analyzed some of the problems that arose. This is his main contribution to psychotherapy: the the running of the clinic mm -hmm. and the analysis embedded in the running of the clinic. Right. The uh, generative, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the world that was going to be subject to analysis is going to be generated through that process and not imposed by the dominant, the superego therapists, mm -hmm. the superegos of the therapists who were just imposing their theoretical positions. Very different. And so in a way, he's always trying to look in therapy for examples 
and this is Moni Al-Kaim. He really likes, he, he thinks he likes, he thinks he likes family therapy, but he, but he mostly likes the idea of the machine and the family therapy and the same way in which he likes to use a tape recorder, portable cassette tape recorder in his own therapeutic encounters, the way Moni Al-Kaim used videotape to tape mm-hmm. sessions and to review the sessions. So he, he's always looking for these examples that he can, he can use to help along right. the way and performances at La Borde and, you know, this whole world of art and, and performance and all the creation of a new language and the creation of new different groups and mm-hmm. the way in which groups are organized and the way in which they break down and the way in which they have to be supplemented and resistances from various forces, internal and external, that they have to deal with. I like the notion of you brought up of introducing these machines into the therapeutic session because they have the famous footnote in Anti-Oedipus about the doctor who's calling the police on the uh, analyzan who brings the tape recorder in. <laughs> but but even in Freud, he, yeah. he suggests in his kind of papers on technique that the therapist, insofar as it's the one-to-one setting, the therapist shouldn't be even taking notes, shouldn't even be writing anything down because you have to have that suspended attention, right? You have to have that evenly Suspended evenly, attention. Fl- evenly floating attention, precisely. Right. Like the still surface of a mirror, <laughs> which is, of course, not at all the case. Mm-hmm. Even in the Freudian encounter, imagine his dog sitting there <laughs> in the encounter, snuffling, you know, maybe like, you know, rolling over, you know, wandering in and out. It's like today on, you know, on Zoom, you see people's cats coming in mm-hmm. and out of the right. picture and, you know, partners and children, birds and whatnot coming by things. <laughs> things falling from the sky. It's the same with the Freudian encounters that the, the chow chows are there and they're poking around and maybe snarling a bit. They're hungry. They have to take a piss, you know, right, right. <laughs> like, like the, it's a world. It's, it's what happens when you try to do things at home. And Freud's <laughs> Freud's writing desk with, with all of the, yeah, with all the totems and oh my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is, is overdetermined. Yes. Completely. It's a theatrical stage, right? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. in a certain way, it's yeah. a, it is a theater of the, of the analysis. Uh-huh. It has also got these animals involved and, and his partners coming, you know, shuffling about and his daughter and, you know, this, uh, this family. Because of my philosophical training, I've, I've been obsessed for a very long time with the status of phenomenology in Guattari. And this is for oh, me a, an ongoing puzzle. And someone who, you know, tr- was trained in the three H's tradition of philosophical history, I always gravitate towards a mention in these thinkers of, oh, you know, we're, we're doing something different than phenomenology did. And then I see, okay, I can accept that to a certain extent. And then I see it creeping back in. And in, in Guetaki, it's in chaosmosis where phenomenology creeps back in. And he has some very, you know, he's obviously not interested in Heideggerian concepts of the ontological difference. He's not interested in that. He is interested in, so, in some version of intentionality. Okay. So how he does this is extraordinary. So that's one of my concerns, is that how in the world can he reintegrate intentionality at the very moment when he says we are displacing or decentering the subject? Wow, that's, now that's very interesting because he mm-hmm. says we're going to take <laughs> the subject-object relation in the middle. Mm. And so intentionality is not hung back on the subject. It's loosened and floating and it adheres to non-subjective objectities and subjectities, as you Mm -hmm. would say. It it adheres to this other 
an, an intentionality of the invisible, an intentionality of, of the proto-enunciative object. So that's, to me, that's, wow, this is really a really strange idea and powerful, hard to get at. So I'm working on that. Of course, I have my other, my other easy answers. Oh, it's all just phenomenological psychiatry. It's all von Weizsäcker and, and uh, the other, you know, Germans that he, he really liked to borrow from in that not very much studied tradition of phenomenological psychiatry. And that's where you get the pathic idea of the pathic versus the ontic in his work. And there's, there's that, there's a whole, I mean, I go into great detail about this somewhere. I can't remember where. And trying to study that. And there's not that many good English translations of von Weizsäcker and some of these other key thinkers he's borrowing from in that tradition. But that, that's another way it survives. And it's, uh, it's fairly implicit. There's not much to go on. The other thing I'm interested in now is, I've always been interested in Japanese, Guattari's fascination <laughs> with Japan. And from the very beginning, when I started to work on the archives, I pulled out everything I could find on Japan. And I wrote that chapter in the Aber introduction on Japanese singularity and some of the ideas that were current then when he was trying to make sense of his own experiences in Japan, but mm -hmm. also some of the features of Japanese culture that he could access through his multiple visits there, in the, especially in the night through the 1980s and in particular. For me, that was a very important kind of discovery of these almost all minor texts Mm -hmm. almost all fascinating fragments as it were of him trying to make sense of this world that he's entered into in a very privileged way by the way as a guest during the economic bubble period mm -hmm. and when he's delivering lectures and traveling around and it has in a say an entourage with him mm -hmm. all the all the time mm. in Tokyo and other places who, uh, you know, he wants to do this. Well, there's always someone to help him and to take him. And there's always an entourage with him. And he's meeting all the intellectuals and he knows them through his association. A lot of them, performers and, and so forth, he knows them through his association with the curators of the big Japan show that was at the Pompidou Center in the mid-80s. So he was plugged into that that side of it as well. Sort of creative writers, musicians, fashion people. He, he knew all of them through that, not only through his visits. So this is a whole universe that's... Anyway, so today, what I'm thinking mm -hmm. is, okay, how do I use Zen to explain mm. chaosmosis. What mm. <laughs> is the immersion in chaotic, chaosmic imminence akin to a Zen experience of the collapse of the subject-object distinction and the entering into this non-duality non of, of the world? Because this is precisely what the schizoanalyst does, right? It plunges into the depths of the patient's psychosis into the chaotic, but not undifferentiated mm -hmm. and to pull back to come back with some complexified relationship of some kind it's that plunging i think that can be described as the breaking of that the fusion of subject object world so I'm, I'm trying to use Zen to figure this out and reading kind of widely in a bunch of different zenic traditions and not respecting their differences very well, <laughs> I admit, but I'm searching for theoretical, you know, theoretical insights that I can apply to Guattari because his, his writing on this is so cryptic. And it's one of those things that fascinates me, the cryptic nature of it, I suppose. And the is, also, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, yeah, go ahead. I, mean, I was just thinking, is this, is this why you helped edit the, what the text on, is it the Machinic Arrows text? Yes. That, yeah. I mean, that's part of it. That's a background text. Jay Hetrick and I did that uh, quite a while ago. 
with Univocal when Drew was still independent. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, that was a kind of culmination of that interest in Japan, trying to get to get, get the text together. And, you know, I was certainly helped by a lot of people in Japan, you know, to do that. It wasn't, wasn't that uh, simple. I think there's probably a few things missing still from that, but we did our best under the under the circumstances. The other thing about about Zen is it's a very complicated system of of belief and thought, and it's not easy to adapt it to someone who's so in a way idiosyncratic. Yet he does say some strange Zen-like things about mm-hmm. schizoanalysis. So. Yeah, like being right on the surface, and uh, you know, oh, go ahead, Cooper. I know that. So I wanted to go back just briefly to you mentioned this phenomenology that appears or just kind of remains in Guattari's work. And although I know that the Husserlian phenomenology and like and Hegel, right, are not exactly the same thing, but I some a thinker that I've been interested in and trying to understand, and I think goes in this direction would be, believe it or not, Max Stirner. And I think there's a certain there's something similar to what Guattari is he's doing with this idea of the creative nothing. Yeah, the creative nothing is probably the the closest concept that they would sort of share. And so I've been trying to figure out how does this how does this work? Maybe some type of transversality. There's a way to sort of patch these sort of concepts together. Um, it's something that I've been sort of obsessed with in the background for a while. Well, Gary, you yeah. you injure, you end your book with the the great zero. You end critical semiotics with with this elaborating on the great zero. Do you think that that kind of goes in that direction a little bit? Z or Zen points. <laughs> Z or Zen points. Zero or Zen. Yeah. I don't know how it works out. It's it was obviously. I'd like to end a book. I would like to you know end my books with some forward looking problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That will I'll come back to them the next time around when I get a chance. The same with this sort of breakthrough in I think the breakthrough in the analysis of Guattari text that came with the rise, the understanding of the role of animism in his his thought. I'm trying to follow that up now with uh, some work on magic. There are a few passages here and there where he says, well, we do need magic. It's a better alternative in some respects than science or scientificity. It helps. It's very useful for expanding the interpretive field of schizoanalysis. He doesn't elaborate very much on this, but I, I think by reading through works like uh, Toby Nathan and uh, Isabel Stenger's uh, Doctors mm-hmm. and Healers, for instance, you know, gives you a contrast between non-Western and Western science, um, the displacement of intentionality, the role of the spell, the spell object, and and, yeah. and, and the displacement of the individual from, and the sim- from the symptoms. The symptom mm-hmm. is no longer an individual thing, right? It's that split. We don't study, you know, this non-Western approach doesn't keep those two things together, oh. the symptom and the person. That's so right. there's, there's a lot, of, lot going in on Guattaki, and this is in schizoanalytic mm-hmm. cartographies where he's trying to work out what alternative pathways exist. Traditional medicine, what is, what? I mean, traditional mm-hmm. medicine, he says, this could be just as valuable for our form of analysis than anything else. But he never really elaborates, what kind of magic are we talking about? What kind of traditional <laughs> medicine? Of course, we have to imagine or find examples ourselves of these ideas and see what, how they work in a kind of schizoanalytic framework. I could definitely see something like sigil magic being something he would be interesting because that's kind of like an asignification or some type of machining mm. process going on there as well. 
it's very suggestive. I, I, it's very suggestive. There's a number of different routes that could be taken. I'm trying to just read histories of magic at the moment and trying to understand exactly the bifurcations in the status of magic. Interesting. And, mm-hmm. I mean, he thinks he's, he thinks that there's a little bit of magic still cohere, you know, still inside of science mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the way in which scientificity is staged. So he believes that all we have to do is just kind of bring it out into the foreground. It will help us to understand how we deal with, uh, in a psychotherapeutic con, a therapeutic context, what role it could possibly play. So those are the things. Zen, magic, those are my... You're studying to be a wizard, Gary. You're studying to be a wizard. (laughs) Well, (laughs) the notion of sigil magic, it does seem like the diagrams that... Guattari starts to elaborate, especially in schizoanalytic cartographies. They become more and more elaborate. They have a kind of magic to them. You just blew my mind. Well, (laughs) you're the one that suggested it. God, that's fantastic. I I didn't make that diagrammatics connection that you just made. That's fantastic. The diagrammatics connection is very significant. Oh, that's good. I thought when I look back at a very ambitious book like The Average Introduction, what I was I mean, with with sprawling footnotes, outrageous, six pages long, you know, that's just foolish <laughs> in a way, just to even attempt it. I mean, of course, I was furious. That engagement was so intense at the time. But when I look at my attempt, my fledgling attempts to explain, even to give an overview of the diagrammatics, the, the complexity of those diagrammatics, I think I made some inroads in terms of the theoretical foundations that were necessary to approach the problem and to reference some lingering structuralism that mm-hmm. I, I detected in there. I still think there are other ways to do that that can be quite constructive. And I think maybe magic is one way. And we haven't really worked out fully the force of the diagram. That definitely is Ooh. true. And, <laughs> and, and it, it does call for more study of those diagrams and putting them in context. I know we have about five minutes left. The, the one thing I wanted to mention in our last session on anti-Oedipus, I believe it's on ethnology and psychoanalysis. It's section four of chapter three. They cite Victor Turner, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Ndembu doctor at work or in, in practice, I think. Oh. And um, I read that article to put it in context, but they do a good job of, of schematizing it and summarizing it. They make this claim, but they, they don't really unpack it because, of course, the last chapter is where schizoanalysis comes up. But they say that what the Ndembu doctor is doing is performing a kind of schizoanalysis where he's he not only it's not just a one-to-one relation the whole village the whole tribes are brought in and and grievances are aired and and rites are performed and and all of this so i, I guess that that was the example that i thought of when you brought up um, absolutely and it, that's that's perfect that's a perfect example of the contrast between treating individuals and, and or treating groups right i mean that, that's what the sort of tribal doctor is treating a group not an individual. And the symptom is a is loose. Mm-hmm. The symptom is out there. And it has a intentionality as an invisible source. And and it could be witchcraft, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it is, and it is, and all of those are factors. Yes. And and uh, this is the kind of thing that Nathan and Stengers do beautifully. Mm-hmm. The contrast between healers and doctors, between non-Western and Western medicine. That's he, key, key to understanding, I think, the approach that they take. And that's why magic 
you know, can be brought back in and animism mm -hmm. is important and, and non-Western, tr you know, traditional medicine is also a significant re reference point for all of those reasons that are flagged in Antietipus, but, you know, but somehow don't, are not elaborated on in a sort of clinical systematic way, right? We kind of lose that thread and it appears throughout the Guattari uh, books, you know, just here and there. Because it doesn't appear in the grid when he's describing the grid, mm. for instance, mm -hmm. it doesn't doesn't really factor in. I mean, he's more he's more concerned with with the rhythms and mm. uh, movement of bodies and schedules and how they're posted and how they're interpreted. Is that a part of it? The the refrains and the rhythms that you're bringing up is that is there something that magical in 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 mm, coining I don't the think refrain? So. I, I don't quite? know. I don't think so. I don't think so. Is it too ethologically I, based? Or it's more it's... like organizational. It, you know, it, it's gotcha. sort of gotcha. like a. It's almost bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. It's not a Foucauldian diagram of power, but it's a diagram of, it changes over the decades, of course. Right. The diagram changes the way that it works. The organizational principles change, but it's not about those things. It's not about mm -hmm. magic. It's not gotcha. about other things. It, that, this, it's a bit vexing how he gets those things that we're, that I'm interested in anyway, back into the picture, uh, maybe just theoretically. Do you have a working title? If you want to give us something to give us something to, to look forward to and to and to imagine and, and plot little lines of flight, do you have a well, do you have some working titles for some some of these these works you have? Uh, so I I started to write a book on chaosmosis because mm -hmm. it's thirty years of chaosmosis in twenty twenty two, right? So that is a big year, and the chaosmosmedia.net has been launched in Europe. Chaosmosmedia.net by Anne Carrion and others have launched, Francois Penn and others have launched this website and Bifo, Bifo Berardi is, is you know, involved and has cool. published his chaotic spasm, chaosmic spasm on there already. I have my little uh, excerpt from Zen, from my first attempt to understand Zen. I'm going to be editing a special issue of Delisquatari Studies on 30 Years of Chaosmosis, Wow. Which will come out at the end of next year. And there's a bunch of different essays in there. On Chaos but I did start writing a book. And the way I started writing it was that I just would write an essay in response to each chapter in Chaosmosis. And so the first one was heavy on the phenomenological mm -hmm. material. And the other thing that really interests me, and we don't have time to talk about this, yes. was that in Guattari, you know, think about the World Wide Web circa 1991, 1992. I mean, it's just barely... Right. I mean, it just barely exists in a way, right? It's just starting out. The concept is is fresh, and he's fascinated. He's, I would say, infatuated, in love with the interface, in love with these new ideas, hot links, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yes. You know, like, I, like, like just he's so fat, and Cosmosis is full of this mm -hmm. fascination that the way he links things together, are like you know. That's the other thing. Early internet culture is a, a key foundation for chaosmosis. Very interesting. <laughs> it's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary to try to work through the implications of that. So that's how I started. And then I was a little bit, I got up to the point, I didn't make too much progress because then I started to write about Zen and the magic. Mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. really I mean, <laughs> sent me on a D long detour. Nice. So I'll try to get, I'll try to get back to it. So maybe, now, is this, maybe is that this will come. Work? Is yeah, this, all... this is all one work. This is all Great. one work. One Excellent. massive, one massive Grimoire. project. It's the final <laughs> project. I swear, it is the final project in Guattari. I'm not going to write any more books in Guattari. Is it this? <laughs> this, this is wow. it. This well, is it, huh? if there is one thinker, maybe you haven't 
yet written about Baudrillard, Guattari, these other thinkers, you know, is, is there someone that you would just, you haven't yet, but, but would like to, that would be my last question. Oh, that's such a difficult question. I mean, I, I, I still think I should have written a book on, on Marcel Mauss. Mm. I should have written a book about the gift, theories of the gift. If I have one regret, it is that. To go mm. back to some of that anthropological material, which I was absolutely in love with. Yes, I do too. At, yeah. at various points in my life and try to work, try to work out something. It's not too late. It's never too late. The clusters, the Pierre clusters is one that I've absolutely loved, especially for Guattari. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I agree that there's that, that material is so incredibly important and rich and that it was, it really formed for me part of a a world that I was just trying to create for my, for myself and for my, for my future during that period of, you know, a PhD study, mm-hmm. doctoral study, that those books were very, very important for me. Society Against the State and um, Libidinal Economy and, and so forth. Some of the other anthropological works. There's uh, Jean-Joseph Gu wrote a very interesting book during that period about symbolic economies. So there were, there were key books all circling around the anthropological referent. Well, Gary, we are so thankful yes. uh, that, that you spent your morning afternoon with us time flies when you're having oh, fun absolutely. i i enjoyed it immensely and we just i'm just so glad we got to talk to you today. yes yeah i mean we're just really we're really not even getting past the surface you know i feel <laughs> we've just really started talking right. about we haven't really even opened up any of these texts and started to kind of pick through them mm-hmm. in a serious way this is a maybe a long-term project we should yes. think about doing I, I, we would love to. We would love Absolutely. to. Ha, we would love to talk to you again yes. today. I, I just enjoyed hearing about your trajectory yes. from from the past and into the future. I I, mm-hmm. I thought that that was uh, that was illuminating and fascinating. But you know, any one of these texts, especially since we're continuing anti Oedipus and symbolic exchange of death, I know that I would want to pick your brain on Baudrillard some more. You know, your your dissertation and your first book or your books on Guattari. I mean, we, we definitely want to have you back on in the in next year and we'll, we'll, we'll keep in touch and we'll, yeah. we'll talk with also, yeah, yeah. I still want to talk to you about the, the seminars and, and yeah, I know. I want to seminars. talk to you about all these things. Yeah. So, so many things. I know. So we, so many things. <laughs> well, well, keep, next, keep up the good work. Anyhow, keep up the good work. Uh, I, I definitely will try to find time because those seminars are fun and um, oh, yeah. interesting. You've always kind of inspired me to, to do that, to, to think about doing, um, for example, machine and conscious. That was partly, you know, no one else was taking Guattari seriously, at least not in the way in which you are. So you've always been a, a big source of inspiration for me. And, and hopefully we'll get to, we'll get to chat again about some of these projects and some of these oh, and, and, yeah. and your own. Oh, I hope so. It's great chatting with you. It's just fantastic to talk about Guattari. Yes. It's, it's always a pleasure. You know, it was very lonely working with <laughs> <Guattari> at first. <laughs> well, was, I have, it was, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know how lonely it can get. Right. Yes. Uh, because of the, the way in which the Deleuzian scene unfolded mm, yeah. very slowly in the early 90s, in, in, at least in Eng- the English speaking world, you know, sort of made it difficult to get a word in edgewise about the other guy. Right. Everyone loves Deleuze. We know <laughs> that. But maybe it's Guattari's time. If, 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 if the 20th century was the Deleuzean century, maybe the 21st will be, uh, will be Guattarian. 
Yes. Well, we're already getting, I mean, uh, we're already seeing the importance of Guattari every day. You know, Chiasmosis is a book of the future. Yes. It's a book about the future, right? So. And that's why SoCal and Brickmont didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course not. I mean, they were not able to understand that. That's no. obvious. Or any of the thinkers <laughs> they really <laughs> yeah, talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Gary. Well, we, right. We're, we'll we'll let you go. Enjoy the rest yeah. of your day. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. And, uh, and we'll keep in touch, and we'll let you know as soon as this uh, as the episode comes out. Excellent. Absolute pleasure, it's Gary. A great we- pleasure. A great pleasure talking to both of you. Thoroughly keep enjoyed up, it so much. Thanks again. Work. Thank you. We you as well. Yours. You as well. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. We'll be in touch. Including the ultimate form of security, which is the old state of things, pure violence without object This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, Logotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.